It's a brand new year, and my first guest in 2024 is Thomas Parker. I have mad respect for the United States Marine Corps, and Tommy was a Marine. One of my favorite movies of all time is Forrest Gump, and Tommy's life is literally a living example of the co-star of that movie, Lieutenant Dan, on this episode of Unbeatable, you get a chance to hear from a Marine that was doing hopscotch of doom in Afghanistan and then got himself blown up. And he went from surgeries to drug addiction to spiraling out of control. And then all of a sudden, one moment at a gas station in Missoula, Montana, turned everything around for him. Can't wait for you to hear from Tommy Parker on this episode of Unbeatable. These stories of triumph over adversity will help you handle your toughest days in life and become unbeatable. Hey, Tommy, it is great to have you on the show. Man, I've been looking forward to this episode with you. Thanks for being with me, man. Thank you for having me, Jeff. Um, I should start right out of the gate by telling you, Semper Fi, brother, thanks for serving the country. I see all of the Marine Corps gear behind you, and man, thank you for all the sacrifice and the service that you've made for us. Thank you, Jeff, and, and uh, if I'm correct, you served as well in, in Mogadishu, so thank you for that as well. Yeah, man. Um, one of my favorite movies is the movie Forrest Gump, and... I don't mean this as an insult, man. One of my favorite characters in that movie is Lieutenant Dan, because when I watch this guy, what he goes through from this platoon leader in Vietnam to the, you know, the, the, the surgeries, to the anger, to the, you know, the dr uh, drug and alcohol addiction. And then by the end of the movie, man, Lieutenant Dan becomes an entirely new person. I learned to love that movie because I loved Lieutenant Dan. And I get a chance to interview a real life Lieutenant Dan on this episode. No kidding, man. Your story and his story are so similar. I was watch I was reading a little bit of your background. I was like, this guy's a, a, a real life, no kidding, Lieutenant Dan. Well, thank you, Jeff. And actually, I think I have to rewatch Forrest Gump now because I didn't uh I haven't watched it since I got injured and I want to now pay attention to Lieutenant Dan's uh character arc. I'll just tell you the that real life guy who acts the role of Lieutenant Dan, Gary Sinise, that dude is one of my heroes, not because of the, you know, acting career, but he has spent so much money and so much time honoring the military. Gary, if you're listening to this episode, man, thank you for all that you've done to pack up Gold Star families and take them to Disney World to honor the military you're amazing, dude. And now I get a chance to meet a real life guy that you portrayed in Forrest Gump. So um, I'm going to put you on the spot for just a second, Tommy, yes, just sir. to set up for the listeners where we're going to go with this episode. Can you give me one word that would describe how you made a transition from hooked on drugs and in prison to now inspiring people on stages all across America? Like, is there one word that you could describe what made this massive turnaround for you? Um, 
I think there'd be three words, honestly. I, w- I wish right. I could give you one, but uh, there's there's got to be three words. Um, and uh, uh, the first one would be love. Um, if I wouldn't have been loved the way that I would, was, I couldn't have um, overcame my addiction and everything else. The second one would be belief. Like, um, as you'll hear in my story, my wife believed that I could truly change, that I could be something other than I had been. Um, and then the last one was on me. I had to be authentic. Um, and for most of my drug addiction, after I got injured, I wasn't an authentic individual. I didn't do things that were, were true to me. I did what I thought other people should do. Or um, then when I was an addict, I lied all the time. And so love, belief, and yeah. authenticity is truly what, what helped me overcome an addiction. Yeah. And by the way, when a guy goes through what you went through in the military, in combat, and the wounds that you went through it, some guys will spiral downhill They'll turn to drugs. They'll turn to alcohol. Some of them will take the pistol and they'll just end their life because of how challenging the, you know, recovering and finding a new normal is after the kinds of wounds that you went through on the battlefield. So before we get into this um, IED that went off in Afghanistan, let's talk about growing up, um, born in Hawaii, but moving to Montana you can't make a bigger transition in climate and environment than from Hawaii, the tropical island of Hawaii, to uh, the the you know beautiful mountain ranges of Big Sky Country in Montana. So, tell me what a little bit of what it was like growing up. Um, first of all, I had no choice over going from Hawaii to Montana. Sure, I, I love Montana and I love Hawaii, but I didn't get to choose to come back here to the cold. Um, but no, I, I moved to uh, from Hawaii to the middle of nowhere, Montana. Like I grew up in a town that had uh, 1,500, 2,000 people, tiny, tiny town. Um, I always joke with people uh, that I have two stoplights. That is all the stoplights I have in my town. And when I was a kid, we had one stoplight. And then when I was a teen, we got our second Ooh. one. Yeah, so Booming we, metropolis you know, with a second oh, stoplight. Massive booming metropolis out here. Uh, but it was, um, it was an interesting lifestyle. Uh, People from rural America, um, from rural Montana, um, are are tough people. They they live ranch lives. They they do all these things, and so that's the life I grew up um, living. Uh, my mom's one of five siblings, so I was constantly um, voluntold. Uh, if anybody in the military <laughs> understands what that, I, that, yeah, I know what that phrase means. Um, yeah. I was voluntold to go uh, go do farm work and other work and and everything. Um, but it really helped me uh, later in life to understand that, um, like the camaraderie of like, if you help me, I'll help you. Just through, I guess the reciprocity is what I'm looking for of, of the tight knit community, and it, it helped uh, that helped me in the Marine Corps because there's people in the in the small communities like this that the people don't like, but they still help. And same within the Marine Corps, there's dudes I hate in the Marine Corps. So so that uh, uh, everybody helps carry the load mentality of a small community really paid off as I got older. Did your mom's family come from Montana? Is that yeah. where she's originally from? And did yeah, they um, have a ranch and take care of a bunch of animals? When I was a kid, yeah. Uh, when my grandpa was alive, we had a we had a pretty good sized ranch. Um, he had some cattle and some sheep, and and we put up some hay and stuff. And then uh, after my grandpa passed away, um, the the land was split apart between uh, his children. Um, and so there is still some farming and ranching done on some of the land um, and some of the land there, there's not anything done. But this is where um, my family uh, settled, I guess. 
Um, they came here in about 1910 or something like a long time ago. And so there's been several generations here in this valley in Montana. I ask these questions because I have been around people that lived on farms and ranches growing up and they are tough. They're strong. They're, they're resourceful. And if you take care of animals, um, sometimes on the farm, if you're bringing in a crop, you know, you do the work and you take care of the crop. And then there's a couple of weeks a year where all of your income for the whole year, uh, you know, is, is contingent on those couple of weeks. But if you take care of animals, man, there is never a day off Christmas, New Year's, Easter Sunday morning, man, those animals have to eat, they have to drink, they need to be taken care of. And if you live on a ranch, it is hard work every single day of the year. So I can imagine how tough and strong you were when you were growing up. It, uh, I appreciate that. But it took growing up to make me tough and strong. That I don't think anybody starts tough and strong. When I had uh, um, I had kid, or kids, I had pigs as a kid. And uh, I hated going and feeding slop to those pigs every morning. I just, yeah. I hated it. It was cold. I didn't want to go put that out there, but it was fun. Yes. And for the people that are not familiar with the U.S. geography, Montana is up north. It is wide open plains, which means the wind howls. The snow is brutal. Those temperatures get really rough in the wintertime. And you got to get up in the early in the morning. It's 365 days a year and take care of those animals. Yes, sir. Which would make life in the Marine Corps a little bit more bearable. I mean, it's not easy to be a United States Marine, but I found that some of the guys that and gals that grew up on in farms on farms and on ranches, they knew what they knew the value of hard work before they showed up to the military. So when did you decide you wanted to be in the military? What sold you on the Marine Corps? Um so actually growing up the entire time, I didn't want to be in the military um, or I didn't think that that's where I was going to go. What I really wanted to do was I wanted to play in the NFL. I thought that um, I would be a big, strong kid and I would just make it to the NFL because of that, of the fact that I was big and strong. Um, but actually, I heard something the other day that I think really um, uh, hit the nail on the head. Uh, I uh, <laughs> dealt with mediocrity by with size. And so instead of trying really hard, I believe just because I was big, I would make it far. Um, and when and then I didn't take high school serious either uh, academically. I um, I really went to school just to to play sports and hang out with people to play ball, right? Yeah, school yeah. wasn't wasn't school to me. Um, and then when I tried to go to colleges, colleges told me that they didn't think that uh that I would graduate. I didn't like a one point nine or two point oh accumulative GPA for. <laughs> For high school and it uh looking back and <clears throat> if there's any any young people that watch this like please take high school serious looking back definitely like, i'm yep. not i'm not as dumb as my grades showed without a doubt like, I, I i'm far more intelligent that than that but grades are a reflection of effort and colleges and and follow-on schools need to understand that you will give the effort to see to the in-state goal um and so they couldn't see that. And uh, I tried to talk to the Marine Corps when I was in high school, my senior year, I think, um, the day that wrestling season started. And uh, and I sat down and was talking to the recruiter. And he's like, well, how much do you weigh? And I was, I was like, I weighed 213 or I don't remember how much I weighed exactly. But I was a little bit overweight for what he wanted. And I was like, and he's like, well, he's like, you're too fat. Come talk, 
Tom, come talk to me when you're not fat. <laughs> I, was right. like, I was like, hold on, dude. Like wrestling season starts today. Can we? That's can right. We, I'm uh, about to cut 30 pounds in about yeah, a week, like, right? And he was like, well, come talk to me after that. Completely made me mad with the uh, with the Marine Corps. Sure. I was like, you know what? I'm yeah. not going to do that. Um, and then after I graduated, uh, one of my best friends in high school joined the Marine Corps and he needed somebody to talk to a recruiter because he was on recruiter's assistance. And me being a good friend, I was like, you know what, dude, I'll sit down with him. I'll talk to him and everything. Um, and uh, and I got lucky, actually. So I, I tried to go talk to the recruiter and I told him I want to be in the infantry. And he's like, no, there's none of those spots available. We could put you somewhere else. And and I was like, no, nah, that's that's cool. I'm going to leave then. And he's like, wait, 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 wait. Let me get your information um, because uh, maybe a spot will open and we can put you in, in the infantry then, which everybody that's ever been in the military knows that that is a lie. There was a spot available the entire time, but he was trying to have somebody be like a water purification yeah, specialist. That's before right. they went yeah. to shoot guns. Um, and so ended up getting an infantry uh, contract, but uh, I was also lucky because my recruiter um, was honest, actually. Uh, it was his first time ever being a recruiter. I was the first guy he ever put in the Marine Corps ever. Um, and like, I asked him what the infantry would be like. And he said, you will walk when you don't have to, knowing that we have trucks. You will sleep outside, um, knowing that you have a bed. In some cases, you'll be able to see the building that you live in. Um, and honestly, in one case, I could see the room to my barracks door while uh, we were right. sleeping yep. and doing it. There you go. Um, but uh, he was he was spot on on all of that. And the thing that he was the, the most right on is he said, when you actually get to do your job, it will be awesome when you get to do the the gun fighting and shoot guns and do that style of training. You will love it. And he was he was 100 percent. Whenever we did that training um, and some other people that have been in the military might laugh at this if they hear this. But I felt semi like like action hero ish, like other people don't just get to shoot machine guns and blow stuff up. But I got that's to do right. That. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, man, your story and mine are so similar. I it's been a minute since I was a high school kid but I didn't plan on joining the military either. And I'll never forget my senior year, just about ready to graduate. And then the military recruiters all show up in front of all of the high school. I think it was just the guys from high school. I don't even think they had the girls in the room. And it was without fail, the Marine recruiter stands up on stage after the Navy, the Army, the Air Force, the Coast Guard, guys are up there and every dude in the room looks at that marine uniform and says i am going straight to the marine corps i went to the army and i was the very first guy that my recruiter put in the army and and i had the same conversation with them i said hey man i want to become an army ranger and he said we can give you a contract to be a cook in the in the rangers right now but we can't make you infantry we don't have any contracts but because I was the first guy that he put in, he was like, listen, man, let me tell you how you can do this. Um, there's going to be some risk along the way, but we'll make you an infantryman and then we'll send you to some airborne training and then you can try out for the Rangers. But he wasn't like you. He wasn't trying to you know, trick me. He wasn't trying to sell me on something. He was like, the only way I could get you guaranteed into the Rangers is if you're a cook. And I was like, I think I'm going to pass on that. I'll just give it a shot by going to, going into the infantry so you worked your way in through selection and everything then that's yeah that's man cool. sure okay. yeah did it all as a private you know i came from farmland and hard work and for me i was like yeah this is what i it was what i expected when i tried out for the rangers that's awesome okay oh. 
Okay, so let's go to uh, your time in the Corps. How long have you been serving in the Marine Corps when you get deployed to Afghanistan in 2010? Um, about a year and a half. Uh, I joined in, in uh, early 2009, um, uh -huh. or February 2009, and we deployed September of um, 2010. And so a little over a year and a half, right around there. Um, and to be entirely honest, before we deployed, I didn't think that we were going to go to Afghanistan. We had done this whole workup um, to go on a MU or a Marine Expeditionary Unit. Um, and for those of you that aren't familiar with that, that is where uh, Marines get on aircraft carriers and we float around the, the U.S. or not the U.S., the world and go um, train with uh, train with other um, services. And I put it in air quotes because if you talk to Marines that have been on a float, uh, they just got a party with other military branches. All right. Okay. Um, and so that's what I thought that we were going to do. And then uh, our battalion commander got it changed last second for us to be able to go and do this combat deployment. And um, I remember when he brought us in and kind of, uh, you know, he's like, oh, school circle, sit and you'll bend. I got some, I got some news, gents. And he was super excited about it. And he's like, we're not going on a float anymore. We're going to Afghanistan. And like, there were some dudes who were hooting and hollering and everything. And I have to be entirely honest. I wasn't one of those guys. I was like, oh, we're, we're going to war now. This is completely different than what I thought I was going yeah. to do. Not what I thought I was going to do, hanging out on the back of an aircraft carrier, partying with other foreign services. Yeah, it did. and so um, there were guys that like looked it up and, and, um, and everything. And I feel that this part is important to my story because after that, uh, you fast forward a couple months, I go home and I, and I see my mom right before uh, pre-deployment leave. Um, and uh, she's asking me what, what I want done with my stuff or um, like, uh, and asking a 21 year old questions I wasn't ready for. Like, hey, if, if you die, what do you want done with your stuff? Yeah, do you where want... do you want to be buried and what do you want your headstone to say? Those kind of hard questions, right? Yeah, and, and uh, it, it's super important for, for everyone to know that when I deployed, I thought that you would, that people went over and uh, either died or came back, that those were the only two options. I didn't think that coming back as a person missing limbs was an option. Yeah. Um, and neither did my family. Were you, uh, when you went to Afghanistan, where did you guys get stationed? Where were you living? And how long were you in Afghanistan before the uh, IED went off? Um, so I got sent to uh, Sangin, Afghanistan, which is in the Helmand province. Um, uh -huh. Down south in the bowl um, where there was a lot of fighting in 2010. Yeah. Yeah, we we had a, a very kinetic deployment for, or 3-5 had a very kinetic deployment overall. Um, I would say where I was at with Lima Company, um, we were at a patrol base called Jamil um, that has now since been demilled. But um, we had we had taken this uh, house and and built it up and everything. And um, when I got injured, we had been uh, in country for four and a half months ish. Um, I got injured December eleventh of two thousand and ten. So just to give the listeners a little bit of background, um, when he said kinetic deployment, he's talking about lots of action, lots of firefights, lots of people getting lot, killing lots of bad guys and some of your buddies getting wounded or killed. And um, I had a chance to pass through doing some combat operations out of Camp Leatherneck 
named after the United States Marines that were there just a few months before you're there. Now, I spent almost 10 years straight in Afghanistan. No kidding. Started showing up there early in the war, kept uh, going back and forth there. And I had a chance to watch how the fight developed and how it kind of got worse down south, especially in the Helmand province of Afghanistan. And I watched the, you know, the intelligence reports of the heavy fighting that you guys were doing down there in the Helmand province. When I showed up to Afghanistan, early 2003, um, there were still, I think the international community, the international um, rights organizations estimated that there were still somewhere around 20 million mines spread throughout the entire country of Afghanistan that were left over from the Soviet war. And every village that I went to, there was a woman or there was a little kid with an arm missing or a leg missing because they stepped on a mine and they got blown up. So every patrol, not only did you have to worry about the enemy, but you didn't know if your next step, if you were literally going to lose a leg. And I want the listeners to understand what the Marines are doing down there in the Helmand province is killing a lot of bad guys, getting in a lot of firefights, but every step that you take in the soil of Afghanistan, you don't know if you're going to lose a leg. And now you're four months into the deployment. Mm -hmm. And will you talk us through what sent you out on patrol that day? And then I want to just turn the microphone over to you and let you describe what happens when you get blown up by the IED um, that went off in December. Okay. Um, and thank you, Jeff, for, for that explanation. And it actually segues perfectly into to what why we were out there that day. Um, and I wanted to add a little part to it. Like um, where we were, our largest threat was IEDs. I, I wasn't that scared, which sounds really, is going to sound really weird to people. I wasn't that scared of being shot at. Like they, they weren't very accurate. I wasn't like the, the fear of being shot by the Taliban wasn't that great. However, not knowing what was under the ground. And as we called it playing hopscotch of doom, that was frightening because you you hoped that where you stepped was okay. But we went out uh, that morning to go blow up some IEDs that a farmer had told us were at his property. Um, so he had come and told us that he had found some IEDs right near his property and he would like us to come and detonate them so that his children or somebody else couldn't um, potentially accidentally detonate them. Because uh, just like what you were saying, Jeff, like we had... Uh, roving dogs that were all over in Afghanistan that occasionally they would detonate an IED uh, and, and occasionally there would just be an explosion and, and like there were IEDs all over and a, a lot of the locals remembered where they were for the most part and would stay away from that area. Um, it sounds really bad, but if I couldn't get a local to walk down a road towards me, I wouldn't walk down the road towards them either because there was something in between us. Um, and so like we, we get told that there's these IEDs in place and uh, so we go out there and we go and we find them and we detonate the IEDs and everything and, and everything's fine. Uh, hey, let me ask you um, real quick. Are the IEDs left over from the Taliban and Al-Qaeda or are they left over mines from the Russian invasion in the 1980s? What are these explosive devices that you get sent after? The stuff that, that we were encountering um, was a majority of just homemade explosives. They, were, uh -huh. they weren't actual mines or anything. They were what they were calling uh, legacy IEDs. And so they'd been there for a long time um, and uh, just hadn't been detonated yet. They, they were um, all over. We'd, we'd never 
we never stepped out on a patrol and didn't find an IED. I heard the experts say early in the war, it will take a hundred years. That wasn't an exaggeration. It will take 100 years to clean the mines out of this country. And I learned to hate mines with a passion because mines will blow up a little kid. Mines will blow up an innocent woman coming back from the market. Mines will blow up, as you said, a dog as it's walking you know, back to its litter. And there are plenty of three-legged dogs in Afghanistan left over from mines that have been there for 30 or 40 years. The, the reason you're on this episode is because of what happened to you on this mission. So now, why don't you get into what happened to you personally? Yes, sir. Um, and so uh, we had turned around and walked back out and we're walking down a road headed back towards our patrol base. Once we got off of the road and out back onto the ridge, um, our patrol base could see us. So we felt that we could follow the same route back to our patrol base we'd followed in. I don't know, a couple of steps after that, we got shot at. I was the last guy out of 20. Um, we had taken enough casualties uh, throughout the deployment that some of our teams had been uh, dissolved and rebuilt in other ways. And um, so we had 11 Marines and nine Afghan National Army guys in our uh, patrol. And um, the Afghan National Army guys were scary in, in their own right because they wouldn't pay attention. Um, and I feel that that is uh, potentially important for, for what happens next. So we got shot at and um, I lay down and hold rear security trying to figure out where the round comes from. We can't figure out where it's coming from or anything. So we decided to push on further. and. Um, me and the guy, uh, the last guy, decide to leapfrog, meaning that one of us will stay set while the other one bounds ahead. And we do that so we can continue rear security. Um, we make it maybe a leapfrog or two, and all of a sudden my ears feel funny. Um, for those of you that have played football or other combat sports, had somebody slap both your ears or something, yeah. that's exactly what it felt like. I was discombobulated um, and, uh, and I felt weightless. And so, um, first of all, how gruesome i guess do you want me to get jeff i remember yeah man get into the ugly this is this okay. podcast is okay. people that have been through some ugly stuff so get into the ugly details of it okay i wanted to make sure um and so uh i always like to put i guess this disclaimer on it what i'm about to tell you guys about my my injury is what i remember to be true um and then at the very end i will tell you something that was told to me that i don't remember happening um and so I feel weightless and I, I feel like I'm floating. Um, and it seems like everything's kind of moving slow. And then I slam back into the ground and I'm sitting upright in a, in a crater that was caused by the IED. I look down at my right leg and my right leg, I can see exposed bone, what I think is my tibia and fibia from about my knee down. All the, the meat has been torn off and my foot's missing. Um, and then my left leg, when I look down at it, it looks like a massive hamburger held together by like rubber bands and shoestrings. It just, um, it's just a mess. And, uh, and um, through the uh, dust comes our corpsman running up to me. And um, he's a little tiny guy and he comes running up to me and he's trying to get me to lay down. And, and I refuse to lay down. I refuse to lay down. Um, and then he grabs me by my chest and slams me on my back. Um. They start, they put a tourniquet on my, my right leg and stuff it full of combat gauze and they start working on my left leg. Um, but before that, they gave me um, morphine injection. And so for those of you that, that aren't familiar with how nerve endings work in the brain, imagine traffic. 
um, everybody's trying to get from where the injury is to uh, the the nervous system in the head to tell you that you're hurt. Um, but if they can't, if the cars can't get anywhere, then you're stuck in rush hour traffic. And so that's what was going on. I couldn't really feel the pain of, of my injury yet until they gave me the morphine. The morphine slowed everything down enough to where I could oh, feel it. Oh, man. And then all of that pain hit you at once. Ouch. It, it felt like um, my bones had all been broken, exploding outwards in my legs, and that what was left had been lit on fire. Um, it's, yeah. it's the best Oof. way to describe it. Um, and uh, uh, it was miserable, honestly. Um, but there was, there was so much going on. They kept trying to distract me from the pain and everything. And while this was going on, we get uh, shot at, um, by just a couple more rounds. And then, uh, you hear grenades and two Oh threes. And like, they responded with way more force than was necessary for the couple rounds, but we didn't get shot at again. Um, and so I, they get the stretcher coming up to me. And uh, I can hear the corpsman say, I can't get it to quit bleeding. I can't get it to quit bleeding. Yeah, sure. And what you're he was talking, talking for moral about, arteries, you're talking lots of veins right now, man, that's a lot of blood loss instantly. Yeah. And so he, what he was talking about specifically is I stepped on the IED with my left leg um, is what the, um, the EOD guys and everything from their battle damage assessment said is that I stepped on it with my left leg. And that one is the one that took the most damage um so my femoral or my femur um fractured and shifted and uh it slit but didn't sever my femoral artery but it, it slid it enough to where they couldn't get pressure on it to get it to actually stop bleeding um and so uh, he put two tourniquets on it stuffed it full of combat guys and everything and then they get the stretcher up there to me i get onto the stretcher and when i get onto the stretcher is the first time i noticed my left hand before that, I hadn't noticed that there was any damage done to it. Um, my my middle finger and uh, index finger are dangling, held on by tendons folded backwards. My thumb is rotated around, uh, pointing kind of down at a, at a different angle. And then my, uh, my pinky and my ring finger are completely missing. And then you can see the scar across here. So I could see all the bones on the inside of, of my hand. I was left-handed, so holding the gun, my thumb was protected being on the back side of the gun and it took everything else with it. Um, they're, they carry me down, they're carrying me down the hill and, uh, and I'm holding up the IV bag next to my stretcher. And uh, because the corpsman's trying to run next to us. And uh, like we just said earlier, talking about the IEDs, um, uh, I want everyone to understand that like, when we clear a route in combat, it's this wide, it's like a foot, no joke. Like, you step your foot where somebody else's foot was. Um, and so we're trying to do our best to make sure that the route's safe and everything. So I'm holding the IV bag. I ended up having to drop it and let it go and hold on to the side of the stretcher. Um, while we're walking down the hill, this is the kind of funny part. Um, I asked my buddy Tomasu, I said, Hey dude, like, my legs are gone. Like I can't, like, I can still feel stuff. They're gone. And he's like, they're gone, man. Um, and then I asked him the most important question that I could ask him because everybody else asked it as well. Uh, I already know what's on yeah. your mind. Yep. Go well, ahead. Is my stuff there. <laughs> and, That's right. Uh, and um, he's like, well, well, I don't know. And uh, I remember being completely offended that he didn't take the time to check for me. Right. Like, uh, you got to go check that out, brother. I need to know right now. Yeah, if I still got my manhood. Um, 
to to kill the suspense uh i did get some testicular injury but everything else is fine um they get us to the truck down there and uh um when i get onto the truck things kind of start to get a little fuzzy um i do know that the or i believe that the corman's name was also parker um and i tell him that uh i'm okay dude i just need to take a nap and he tells me that you are in fact not okay if you take a nap you will die and uh and so from then until we got to the helicopter, every time I closed my eyes, he slapped me so hard. I was going to say, yeah, punch you in the face life. or something, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, we uh, we get there and I can hear the, the whoosh of the helicopters and they tell me to close my eyes. And um, and then dudes that I went through uh, boot camp and school of infantry and everything with are the guys that got me from the truck to the helicopter. Um, and, uh, and I was actually, you were talking about like, uh, the different forces and everything. I was actually Kazivac'd by British, uh, British Royal Marines. Yeah. Yeah. Those sure. guys were, were stellar dudes when we were in Absolutely, combat. Absolutely, man. Always willing yeah. to help. Um, Ran and so, yeah, into some of those guys and the SAS down in Camp Leatherneck and they're amazing. Yep. And so they got me on the helicopter, got me going, um, and they got me to, uh, Leatherneck again. And then from Leatherneck, they took me to Longstuhl, Germany, and then from Germany to Bethesda, Maryland. Um, that took about three days total. Um, I woke up in Bethesda, Maryland, December 14th um, with an uncle of mine at the foot of my bed and my mother at the foot of my bed. And I truly believed I was still in Afghanistan. Um, yeah. Um, I'm going to break in for just a second. Yeah. Early in my first deployment to Afghanistan, special forces team is going down a route. They get hit by an IED. They get blown up. One of the guys is so severely wounded that he has to have an emergency um, appendectomy, or I mean, an emergency uh, uh, surgery right there on the spot. And they're going to cut his leg off. And I remember um, serving with the unit that was, you know, right there in the area. And they said, Hey, Jeff, you want to come in here and watch us amputate this guy's leg? So they <laughs> knocked him out, invited me to come in right there on the spot. They had this guy's leg off and in a garbage bag in like 10 minutes and put him on an airplane. And I was just thinking about you, Tommy, because in, when I'm watching this amputation, these are some of the most skilled surgeons in America that are also in the guard and they just happen to get, you know, pulled together and deployed and sent over to Afghanistan. And I'm thinking this guy's going to wake up in the hospital and never even know that he's missing a leg. When you wake up in the hospital, you're missing a lot more than a leg. So would you tell everybody when you woke up in Bethesda, uncle and mom are by the side of your bed, what are the full extent of your injuries? Um, so the full extent of my injuries, and it took me five days actually for me to fully understand my injuries um, because I was on ketamine, uh, high doses of ketamine for a while. Yeah, sure, yeah. Um, but um, so my right leg is amputated just above my knee. Um, and then my left leg is amputated at my pelvis. It's, it's called the hip disarticulation. And so I have my full pelvis, but um, the actual femur socket part that would fit into there is I have none of that. And then as you saw in the video earlier, left hand is gone except for my thumb. And so I am technically classified as a triple amputee. Look, getting blown up in Afghanistan is life changing. But what will what you'll spend the rest of your life doing is trying to figure out how do you how do you find a new normal? Um, and I, 
almost every guy that I know and gal that has lost a limb in combat has gone through this moment where they feel like I'm no longer a human being. I'm no longer worthy of living. So can you describe just a little bit about what happens to you emotionally and psychologically now that you're a triple amputee after this IED? Um, initially, I lost uh sense of self-worth was probably the most powerful thing. Uh, growing up in a rural community, like I was, I was taught and raised by men that believed that you're only as, as good as what you can do with your hands. That that's yeah. all, all and that by the worth. way, you were a big, strong athlete who was yeah. working farms and you know, all of your livelihood and your future was based on your physical ability, right? Yeah. And, and so loss of, of self-worth was probably the most impactful. Um, other than I, the other one that, that really surprised me is um, fear. I had, uh, I felt that uh, I was a soft target. And for those of you that, that aren't familiar with that, a soft target is something that could be um, easily taken advantage of. I could have yeah, been robbed yeah. or, or worse or whatever. Um, and it was one of the first times ever in my life that I felt that fear that, that I might not be able to protect myself if somebody wanted to do something. I've never heard somebody say that before, but it makes total sense. The vulnerability of being in a chair with, a, you know, most of your left hand missing. How do I protect myself? How do I defend myself? Wow. I'm and writing this down, by the way. You're fine, Jeff. And I have to say that um, I am extremely grateful. There was a guy, uh, he's my one of my best friends. Um, he was blown up four days before I was in Afghanistan. I treated him. Um, we shared a room together, and he is he is a, a solid individual. We, we shared a, a hospital room together um, after I got injured. And I was crying one morning uh, because I had no idea, like, what what now? I'd, and um, he looks over at me, and he said, man, it sucks, but, but this is life now, and we got to figure out how to live it. Um, and I remember, okay, like trying to like <laughs> trying to agree with what he was yeah. saying through my tears. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think of that that statement a lot because it he knew right then that this is what's up, man. Figure it out. Um, and and it took me a long time. And and I mean, he might have had his struggles too. I don't know. But it took me a lot longer to figure that out than it seemed like s some other people. That is a powerful statement for somebody who's been blown up right before you to say, this is life right now. And whether you like it or not, it doesn't matter. You got to figure out how to live it. Yeah, he, How he many surgeries? Had... Go ahead, sir. Yeah. Was how many surgeries, how much, what does it take for you to be able to be, you know, kind of he, uh, as much as you will, you'll ever be healed from those injuries. What is the surgery and the hospitalization look like? Um, so the, the surgery part, uh, was rather intensive. Um, I would go in for some sort of surgery where I would be put under anesthesia every Monday, Wednesday, Friday for, um, seven weeks. Holy smokes. Three days a week. You're under, you're in surgery. Yes, sir. For, for, seven, for seven weeks. weeks. Yes, sir. Wow. Um, and, and I'll just. I'll just point out some of the drugs that they're going to use to, you know, help you med mitigate the pain is extremely heavy, very addictive painkillers. Um, yeah, I was, um, we, we had spoken about ketamine earlier. 
Um, I was on ketamine for the first five days or something like that until I asked them to take me off of it. I was having hallucinations. I thought that uh, my foot kept being tickled by carpet on the in the uh, hospital room we were in, but it was a tile floor. Like there was just a bunch of weirdness, and so I had them take me off of ketamine. But I was on um, Dilaudid, uh, which is another very potent uh, opiate, um, and uh, and it was especially in those inpatient scenarios, it stuff like that is, is necessary to try to figure out that, that comfort. Um, but yeah, that, uh, and in the middle of all of it, we had a Versette shortage. And, um, for those of you that don't know what Versette is, it is a, uh, it's a chemical that they give you right before you go into the operating room. Um, before they give you propofol, it's supposed to relax you and everything. Um, and so instead, uh, hospitals were forced to try to use fentanyl to do something similar. Oh my goodness, man. Fentanyl allergy in a lot of us um, because of how often fentanyl was being used and, and everything else. Wow. Hey man, your story doesn't end there, obviously. Um, you've made a huge rebound in life, but it goes from blown up and busted up really bad in this IED in Iraq to spiraling downhill You've already talked a little bit about what happened to your self-worth and your vulnerability, but can you talk about how you started down the road of drug addiction that ultimately led to jail before a good woman stepped in and really turned things around for you? Um, yeah, so to, to explain the, the drug addiction part, um, it starts off pretty easy, and I'm actually going to use a, a song lyric. There's a, um, an artist named Doobie that says um, painkillers don't work when the pain that you're killing is yourself. Um, oh, and I didn't, man. I didn't I'm understand that, that down. in the beginning uh, because painkillers will do that. Um, and, I, and not just painkillers, but really all drugs. Um, and, and I've spoken about this to, to some youth about it, um, about not using substances. But if there is trauma inside of you that you haven't taken the time to try to align or understand, um, it will create negative talk. And uh, like I said, loss of self-worth. And so when I started abusing these pain pills, um, it made that loss of self-worth sting a little bit less. Um, it made the fear of potentially being um, taken advantage of less. It made everything that I cared about less. And so it, um, in my dumb 21-year-old brain, it was a no-brainer. Like, oh, let's just keep using these because it makes life easier. And, and the, I should add in the military is just going to keep not not just the military, but the medical community is going to keep sending painkillers your way because they want to mitigate what you're going through. So it's not hard to get heavily addicted to some hardcore painkillers right now. No, and, and especially during that time frame, we're talking uh, 2010 when um, when there was the, the Purdue pandemic of of. Uh, uh, and I might have I might have quoted the wrong uh, company, so I hope that nobody gets mad at me for that. But the opiate crisis, where there was yeah. so many Purdue uh, Pharma, yeah, yeah, being being prescribed, and um, and I have to be uh, honest and take accountability. <clears throat> I was given exactly what I asked for, and so because people are like, oh, well, they they prescribe all these medications and it gets people addicted. Like, no. I requested this. I told them what yeah, my people get themselves was. addicted. Sure. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I told them what was going on. And that accountability thing is important to me. Um, 
And so, uh, and I have to give my mom credit on this as well. I had an uncle when I was younger that uh, um, had been addicted to, to pain pills or my family felt that he was, but he was an amputee and, and some other stuff going on. But so my mom tried really hard to make sure that this addiction didn't happen. When she, like she lived in California with me for a while and she um, like would, would dole out my pain medication. And before I would get one, she would be like, do you want it or do you need it? this stuff and, um, and really did oh, what she man, could. Good question, mom. Yeah. Yeah. And like really did what she could to try to make sure this didn't happen. And, and I have to highlight that because people were like, we knew it was a possibility. Um, but as soon as, uh, my mom moved back to Montana, so I could like, uh, I only had a couple months left in the Marine or in the Marine Corps, she moved back to Montana and I was going to get out and move back. And that is where the addiction started. I, I got, um, I got injured again playing seated volleyball. I broke this little bone in, in my body. And so they gave me a, a pain medication and I just kept taking it and taking it. I started with Oxy fives and then um, it moved on to Oxycontin thirties um, that those weren't prescribed. Those were coming from uh, people that were getting them prescribed or uh, people that I knew from around California. Um, and, and uh, this addiction was growing and growing and, uh, and I have to be honest, I thought that when I moved back to Montana that that I could completely stop doing uh, pain pills because I was like, oh, I don't have the network up there. There's no way that it's going to work. I don't know anybody up there doing pain pills. Um, but when I moved back to Montana, um, I started to look for, for that behavior. And when you're a drug addict, it's pretty easy to spot a drug addict. Um, and if it quacks like a duck, man, it's a duck. Um, and... And, uh, and so I found people up here that were like that. They were doing drugs and, and I started doing more and, and more pain pills and more pain pills. And, and I have to add to this that at this um, time while, I was, while my addiction was growing, there were more and more people asking me to go uh, give speeches and go do these, these uh, other uh, things yeah. Because, yeah. because I was a motivating dude. I like they're like, oh man, like you seem to not care about life. Like, like you're still powering through even with your injuries and all this. Like I was high all the time. It's pretty easy to seem like life doesn't affect you if you're high all yeah. the time. Yeah. And, um, but I, I pretended, I pretended, um, like I wasn't a drug addict. I pretended all of these things. I, I, um, I've said before that I fractured myself into into two pieces and I made this facade on the outside of me that, that was inspiring and motivational and never down and all this. Um, and then the inside of me that was insulated by that facade was this drug addict that was snorting pain pills and doing all these things like uh, and, and uh, I let everybody see one thing and then I, I was a different thing. Um, and that that created so much turmoil for me because I wasn't being authentic as an individual. We have to be authentic uh, to align our, our inner and, and our inner dialogue with our exterior actions. And I wasn't doing that. Um, and, and things got worse and worse. I had nonprofits that tried to help me. I got given a home from a nonprofit um, that, that I completely disrespected Jeff. Uh, and, and she may, I, it was a house. Okay. As, as I'm going to say it that way. And, and I'm not trying to downplay it because I think that for a house to turn into a home, it has to be respected. And, and um, and I, and I got given a house that was the intention, uh, the, the nonprofit's intention for me to make it a home. Um, but I didn't feel 
like the sacrifices that I had in and uh, in combat and other stuff. Like I didn't feel deserving of the things being given to me, and so I didn't respect them. I didn't. I didn't like. Um, and looking back, I feel that man, if I if I truly felt that I didn't deserve them, then I should have declined them. I shouldn't have taken them and disrespected them. Um, and I'm sorry for. Uh, for any of the the misuse that I did uh, when people were doing their best to try to to help me, um, there were so many people that I disrespected and and um, did wrong, and and I'm sorry for that. But back to to what was going on, and so um, my addiction was getting worse and worse, and then around 2015, um, the lady that I was was dating uh, took her and her two kids, and she she left. She's like, I can't do this anymore. We're done. Um, and she left. And, uh, and so I immediately went to drug treatment for the very first time. Um, but it wasn't because I truly wanted to be sober. I went to drug treatment because I wanted my life back. I wanted her back. I wanted the kids back. Or at least that's, that's what I, I thought that I truly wanted in the moment. Um, and, uh, and I thought that that was the way to do it. Just like, okay, cool. We'll go, we'll go make this change and then I'll have you back. Everything's okay. We're fine. Um, and that wasn't the way that it worked. I went through the treatment center. I talked to the woman the day before I got out and, uh, and she informed me like, Hey man, like that time in our lives has passed. Um, that's not coming back. And I was like, okay. And, uh, I relapsed within eight hours of being out of treatment oh, I because I didn't say, have a reason yeah. anymore. Sure. I didn't, yeah. I didn't care. Um, but something else happened at that same time. So when I went to treatment the first time I had to admit to people that I had a problem. Um, which is usually where people start to make growth. Uh, I was taught as a young kid, if you know the problem, then you know half of the solution uh, because you already know what's wrong. But I didn't, uh, I didn't use that as a way to to build or repair or anything like that. I used it as like this weird permission slip um, where I was like, well, I'm a drug addict. I just, you know, drug addicts do dumb stuff. Drug addicts do what drug addicts do. Um, and and I used it, yeah, as a permission slip to to just act like a bad person um to to lie and manipulate and and um and do drugs and 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 it just it allowed my spiral to go from a spiral to a swan dive um and uh and after that they're like so the the community when i first came back here to montana they rallied around me elevated me as a hero um, once again, rural community people had forgot that, uh, and and this I always offend some people when I say it, but I truly believe that the community I grew up in forgot we were at war, or yeah. or at least well, most of America did. Sure, of course, had, hadn't seen the the repercussions of war come back to their doorstep at least yeah. in a long yeah. time. I'm the yeah, first one sure. that was the first one to come home with a war injury in a while, and they're like, "Oh God, like thank you," and and they elevated me, um, and then. Uh, boy, that the, the fall from, from elevation was uh, fast when everybody realized that I was a drug addict. But there were, there were some people that would kind of try to hold on to like, oh, well, Tommy's a drug addict, you know, let him uh, give him leniency. You know, I, I, like, I don't know how many people told me I would probably do drugs too if I went what you went through, Tommy, like, um, <laughs> which is a wild statement. It really is. Yeah, that is. That statement might be true, but it ain't helping anything right now. And it's also not okay, though. Like, I understand what they're trying to say. Like, oh, like, because what they're, uh, the way I take the statement is like, oh, I feel so much pity for you. Your life is so hard that the only way for you to endure it, you need to be high. Like, that's not okay. That's not the truth. 
And, and beyond that, it doesn't, because I wore a uniform at one point in time, doesn't give me the authority to be a jerk or mistreat people or anything like that. Um, and, uh, but, but back to the, the drug addiction. And so um, at some point in time, pain pills became uh, kind of too expensive. There were some other changes. I live on a Native American reservation in Montana. And there were some other things that, that happened right around that time here locally that, that caused a shift in the drug world, if you will, um, or the, the underground drug scene here. And, um, and I shifted from pain pills to heroin. Um, and I was using heroin for, for quite a while. I was uh, going in and out of uh, um, drug treatment centers. I've been to nine drug treatment centers total. Um, and then uh, if we fast forward all the way to December 11th of 2016, um, which is exactly six years after I got blown up to the day, um, my house was raided by the Lake County Sheriff's Department and um, a bunch of dudes that I was in Afghanistan with. Uh, they didn't raid that. The dudes I was in Afghanistan with didn't raid my house, but they came in to try to do an intervention uh, along with some other family members and stuff like that. Um, and uh, when they came in the house, I had um, a tank top on and I had um, track marks all up and down my arms. By this time, I was using needles. Um, and uh, um, when they came in, they, they tried to um, say their prepared words and tried to speak to me and like really uh, try to save my life. My, the dude, Monty, that I was speaking about earlier, he drove to town um, and, and uh, I wouldn't hear him. And um, I tried to be comical, I, I guess is what you could say, like, and say smart aleck comments. And in some cases, like there was one guy I told like, we aren't even friends, why are you here? Um, and like, I was just completely unreceptive. Um, I got sent to another drug treatment center uh, in um, Wyoming is where I went. And uh, there was some miscommunication with, with that and everything. And I ended up at the, the drug treatment center with drugs. Um, I never made it into the treatment center. They had me sit in a hospital room so I could detox. Um, I put that in air quotes because I, I used heroin while I was in that hospital room. Um, ultimately, it was my, my one and only heroin overdose was while I was in a hospital. Um, they Narcaned me. And, um, and then when I found out that I didn't have to be there, um, I was under the impression that I had to be at this treatment center because the um, sheriff's department had a warrant and that they were going to. And so uh, come to find out they didn't, not all their ducks were in a row and they couldn't charge me with anything. And so I left um, because I didn't care. Uh, like, like I said, I was, I was reaching a point to where I cared less and less about anything other than getting high. Um, and so I had some people come and get me down in, in Wyoming and drive me all the way back up to Montana. Um, and uh, interesting, I guess, thing that occurred, like, so it wasn't just that I was doing drugs, like, um, I went in, uh, uh, there was a bunch of stuff that that was taken from Walmart, and like, there was just a bunch of theft and everything else that goes on with um, that, the drug lifestyle. And for the drugs that you're using, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the drug accoutrement, if you will. Um, and so uh, I I make it back up to Montana. The sheriff's department finds me again, and uh, they're trying to find some stuff that I that they said that I stole. And um, I think that everything's okay. And then I get uh, which we'll call it. The house gets re-raided, um, 
in March. And uh, then I ended up going to jail. And this was up until this point in time, every time that something had occurred with my drug addiction, I was able to either use my ability to, to talk and, and charm my way out of like, hey, man, I'm struggling, you know, um, or uh, on the, I would say a rare occasion, I did it sometimes, but not a whole lot, on the occasion that I would use that I was a veteran, I pull that card, like, hey, veteran, I'm a veteran. Um, and so I usually was able to kind of skirt around it. And uh, I remember going into the jail the first time, like this night and everything, and like, they hand me the, my orange clothes. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm probably not going to need those, man, I'm going to be going soon. And they're like, no, <laughs> you are staying here. Um, it was horrible, honestly. Uh, I got put into an isolation cell. I was coming down All off right. of meth and heroin. Yeah. Um, everything was horrible. I had like wild hallucinations as I came off of meth. And, um, and then I was able to, or I was told I could go to a treatment center. Um, and so they sent me to a treatment center in Louisiana. I went to that treatment center. Um, I spent four months uh, in Lafayette, Louisiana at a treatment center. I, um, and then I came back to Montana and, uh, within a week or, or less than that relapsed. Um, every time after a treatment center, I would come back and I would just relapse and I would relapse. And, um, and it's because I, uh, I firmly believe this, that I can act however or I can act accordingly in any environment. And so if you put parameters on me, even in the, the, like the worst part of my drug addiction, if you put me in a treatment center, a jail cell, and there's no drugs there, then that's fine. I, I can be fine without drugs. But as soon as I was able to be released to where I had autonomy and could go find that substance, I was going. That's as, as soon as I could. Um, and so I get back to Montana. I, I relapse. I'm doing drugs again and everything and uh, trying to think of how this flowed chronologically. So that's March, July. So then we're coming into um, kind of early fall of, of 20, um, I think it's 17, I'm not sure. Um, and I'm, st I'm still doing drugs. And at this point in time, I'm homeless um, because I had lost the, the house that was given to me. Um, and uh the when I got back from that treatment center, the um the girl that I was dating was was living somewhere else, and um and so like I didn't I didn't have anywhere to go, and and I want to point out like so I stayed homeless all the way until I got uh, arrested the following year, um, but it was by choice, um, because of my retirement and and some of the other stuff that I get because I was in the service, um I could have had a place to stay, um but I. I willingly chose narcotics and and my my street lifestyle, if you will, over um, stability and 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 a roof and a house and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, because Tommy, my when did you when did you hit rock bottom, and then how did how did Dara come into the picture? Um, rock bottom isn't real, Jeff. Uh, my mom asked, right. kept asking me that when I just want you to hit rock bottom so I can have you back. Um, rock bottom is where we as an individual deem it to be. Um, 
Yeah, when you decide that you're at, you're at rock bottom, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I don't have a definitive rock bottom scenario. Um, but what what made everything ultimately change was uh, the perfect storm. So like, I went, if we fast forward, I went to jail. I got released from jail the very first time, September 16th. My birthday is September 18th. Um, and on September 18th, I ran into uh, my now wife, Dara, at a gas station in Missoula, Montana. Um, and I grew up with her. Like, I've known her since I was six. She's a beautiful woman, um, internally, externally. Like, uh, um, the, her, external, her external beauty is dwarfed by her, uh, her soul. Um, but anyway, uh, I ran into her, and she looked... Uh, just divine. She was there with with her oldest son at the gas station. They had just um, spent a, a very long night at the hospital. He had had some uh, a procedure done, and she felt like she looked hideous. But to me, she looked beautiful. And and I went and I spoke to her and and um, <laughs> invited her out for coffee. Even though I hate coffee, I just wanted to have time to spend more time with her, you know. And and she said, "Yeah, definitely, we should do that." And um, then she ignored me for a couple months, but. But that was good because during that time, I kept being arrested every two weeks to go to jail for two weeks. My probation officer was in the pro, um, pro process of uh, revoking my probation. She was building a revocation case. And so she kept sending me back to jail every every two weeks. And um, then on uh, December 6th, I got released from jail. This was the shortest time I was ever out of jail. Um, I got released December 6th. It was a uh, Friday and I got rearrested December 8th. It was a Sunday. Um, and uh, it's kind of funny because the dudes that I was in um, the block with when I left Friday to get released, they're like, we'll see you Monday, bro. And then when I came back Sunday night, they're like, you couldn't even make it through the weekend. Um, but when I got uh, arrested that time, I got sent um, or my probation officer said she wanted to send me to a treatment center. And I said, cool. Yeah. Send me to this one. I even requested one. I'd been to so many by that time. Um, but I, I requested one because I wanted tobacco and my phone. And, uh, at this treatment center, I started talking to Dara pretty regularly. Um, and, uh, this is where authenticity comes into play. I don't know what told me to be honest with her. Um, but I was about everything about, all the bad stuff I had done over the last eight wow. years about yeah. my addiction, about everything. Um, and she didn't run away. It was, it was super weird to me because I'd had family, friends, loved ones, everything that had completely pulled away from me. Justifiably. So I was, I was, sure. um, yeah. I was making poor choices. I'm not upset at them for doing that, but for some reason, Dara didn't run and it, and it caught me off guard. Um, and then, so I got released from that treatment center, like February 4th or something like that. Um, and then, uh, her and I hung out for a couple of days and, um, I made it five days without, uh, relapsing, which doesn't sound like that long. It's a work week. You know what I'm saying? But you have to understand that at this time, like five minutes was a long time for me to go without using drugs outside of jail. It might as well have been a decade. Um, and when I relapsed, I I told her, I was like, Hey, I, I relapsed. I'm back to, to being a POS. I'm back to being a, like her from two different sides of the tracks. 
and um and i refused to even come into her house i sat on the front porch of her of her house like um it wasn't handicap accessible i had to crawl through the snow on the ground to get into her house um and i sat on the front porch i refused to cross the threshold and i told her like hey no like i i'm i'm a bad dude again and she said um one of the more impactful things that's ever been told to me like she said i don't like that you do drugs but that's not you and i love you and so that there we go we have we have love there okay and so like i'm like whoa like that completely like kind of rocked me to my core like what do you mean i'm i'm being make believe that i'm not being a real person like that i'm pretending like it bothered me for a while but she ended up being right like the drug addiction or the drug addict tommy wasn't the real version of me it was a band-aid it was something i was trying to hide like i was trying to um yeah i was trying to hide and so um our authenticity and this love and everything kind of put us in an interesting spot and then um february 14th so valentine's day she took me down to go see my probation officer and my probation officer uh, threw me in jail and Dara drove back to, to Ronan. So from where our town was to, to the probation office was an hour. And then she drove an hour back. And like I, every time I got locked up, I would call my little sister and tell her like, hey, I'm in jail. That way you guys know where I'm at. I'm okay. Uh, and uh, it, it got brought up that, um, that I could bond out. And so I had never bonded out of jail before, except for this time. Every time that I'd been had the option to bond out, um, they wanted like $5,000 or something like that. And it didn't make sense to me to, to spend money to come back because I knew I was going to come back. Um, this time the bond was $500. It seemed way more feasible to spend money to come back, which still is stupid. Um, but I needed to have somebody sign a bond for me. And uh, um, my mom, my sister, none of my family would. I'd already burned all those bridges. They didn't trust I was going to do the right thing. Um, and, I, and I wasn't going to ask Dara but somebody else did. And she said, I'll sign that for you. And I said, do you understand that if I don't, like, she's like, no, no, everything's going to be good. And then, so she comes, drives an hour back to come bond me out. And we're meeting with um, the, uh, the bondsman. And he says like, Hey ma'am, you understand that if he doesn't show up that you're liable for this $500 or this $5,000. And, and Dara goes, I know, but I believe he will. Like it wasn't a threat. It wasn't anything. It was that she truly believed that I would not do anything to wrong her. And, and, um, I just said that like, she's, uh, was there with her oldest kid at the gas station. Like we're talking about a single mother. I was raised by one. Like, why is this woman? Like, why is this woman wanting to help me? Like, what am I, like, am I a project? Am I some, like, did you go to the, um, I always joke around that she did the adopt a felon program that she went to like the animal shelter and was like, Oh, I want that one. Um, and I couldn't understand it. And then like, um, time went on. I ended up going to jail again, February 21st. So a week later I went back to jail. Um, so my probation officer could revoke my probation. And I, I assumed that I was going to spend the rest of my sentence in Montana state prison. Like I was just like, Oh, that's what happens when you, when you eat a meal, you have to pay the bill. That's how this works. Like, okay. Um, but my, uh, my attorney, um, had worked a deal or was trying to work a deal. And uh, he's like, I think that I can get you sent to a, um, 
to a co-occurring PTSD and drug addiction treatment center uh, because I think PTSD is why you do drugs. And I told them, that's cool. I do drugs because I like to do drugs, uh, not because of PTSD. And he's like, all right, don't say that in court. <laughs> and, um, and I do have to, I have to kind of expound upon that. I, I said that because if you do something that you can see is at detriment to your life for about a decade and you continue to do it, it's because you want to do it at that yeah, point. Yeah, it's pretty much a choice at that point, yes, right? Yes, and I understand that. have lots of other reasons that, that, you know, were circulating around it, but it's pretty much your choice. Yeah, I had extended periods of sobriety and then immediately went back to using. Like, that's a choice. Um, and he said, I was like, okay. And he's like, uh, we need to find somebody for you to stay with until the bed date opens up or you're going to be housed in the jail. And I was like, oh, I'll just stay housed in the jail, whatever. I'm not going to have anywhere to go. Um, I was talking to Dara on the phone when I was in. Uh, uh, interestingly enough, the isolation cell I got put in when I very first got arrested is the isolation cell I ended everything in. I got brought back to this cell uh, in Lake County again. Uh, I just I find that like an interesting full circle thing, like beginning to end. I went to the same spot. Um, but so I was talking to Dara on the phone and talking to her about everything. And I said that um, they said that I can go to a treatment center, but I would need somewhere to stay until the treatment center opened. Excuse me. Um, and she said, we'll stay here. And I was, I don't know, man, I, uh, like nobody knew about uh, the, like we were kind of a thing or anything. Like I was kind of a secret. I, Everybody in the community thinks I'm a bad dude. Like, are you sure? Like, you run a nonprofit locally. Are you sure about all this? And she was like, yes. I was like, okay. Um, and then, like, the prosecuting attorney also called Dara. Um, and my defense attorney also called Dara. And all of them called to check to make sure that she understood who she was letting in her home. Um, and when the process, like, the prosecuting attorney literally, he's like, you, you know who Tommy is? And Dara's like, I grew up with him. Tommy won't do anything wrong. And uh, which, what? Um, and so, <laughs> while we're all like, while we're, um, while I'm still in jail, I talk to her one night and I tell her that um, I, I told her before this all came to be that, like, hey, um, you are far too incredible of a woman to wait for this to get out of jail. Like, you go do whatever. Um, and she's like, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait. Okay. Um, and then, so, uh, I said it in hypotheticals. I said, if, if I ever get released from here and if for some reason you still want to be something with me, I promise to never put meth in my old lifestyle above you. Um, and she said, okay. And, uh, and I asked her a while after that, um, did you believe me when I said that? She's like, I wanted to. So I All did. Right. And I was like, okay. She's like, did you believe you? And I was like, I had no idea if I could or not, but yeah, I said the words right. so we were going to try. Um, I got released from there March 7th uh, of 2019. And um, I have not done meth or heroin since then. Um, but I had to find a way to fill the void that was already existing in there that I was filling with narcotics. So um, I became an endurance racer. Um, I started pushing my wheelchair, which I, I, sounds weird to a lot of people, um, but I, I started just 
pushing my wheelchair regularly. I remembered when I was young and when I was in the Marine Corps, how much um, happier it made me to be in the gym and to have this physical, like, to, to, to pour yourself into something physically, like the amount of reward and joy that came from that. And so I wondered if I could recreate it. And so I started doing this um, the, in my chair. And then I got told I was in vet court and I got told that um, they were having a veteran suicide awareness and prevention half marathon. And uh, um, they wanted everybody from vet court to either help or, or do this or do something. And I was like, well, I'll, I'll run it. And they're like, okay. And then we show up there the morning of, of the half marathon to find out that there is a 5k and a half marathon. But I've already told everyone that I'm running the half marathon. And um, because like when I got sober, I made this shift that like, if I tell you something out loud, like it's because I believe it to be true and I won't, and it will happen. And so I said that I would run a half marathon. So I had to run a half marathon. I couldn't, I couldn't default to a, to a lesser self when I found out there was an easier option. Um, and so I ran it and, and um, it was a four lap series. The first lap sucked. The second lap sucked even more. The third lap, um, I started to go through like this weird, like cathartic waves, if you will, um, where uh, I was mad. I was <laughs> livid, in fact, that uh, there were cracks in the sidewalk or that the sidewalk was slanted or all of these different things. Why is it raining? Why is all this? I was just furious. And that, that went through um, the whole third lap. And then the fourth lap, um, about a third, maybe... Uh, maybe a little more way through, um, I started crying uh, uncontrollably, sobbing, and, uh, and then it stopped. And then I felt incredible, um, like an incredible high that I have never, like, I didn't even know that it was achievable. It was um, awesome. And, and the junkie part of me was still very alive inside of me, and, uh, and he loved it he loved that high. And so I chased that high again and again and again. Um, I've ran 11 half marathons and two full marathons. Um, All right. In 2020, I ran 2,431 miles um, that wow. year in my wheelchair. Uh, the furthest I've ever ran consecutively is 40 miles. Um, it took me Man, eight hours. Way to go, brother. Yeah. Um, but I just, I kept chasing that and kept chasing that. And, um, Unfortunately, I became addicted to that. And I was very one dimensional. That's all I was doing. I wasn't eating healthy. I wasn't doing any of this other stuff. Um, and uh, I wasn't um, trying to really be a good boyfriend or any anything. Um, and, uh, and then so over the last couple of years, um, I have I have changed and had um, some more identity shifts. Um, I proposed to Dara. Um, we're, we've been married over a year. Um, actually, I was training for an Ironman. This is a silly proposal story. Um, I was training for an Ironman and uh, I was on my wheel or on my, my bike all the time. And so I was getting pressure sores on my butt. And um, one day, Dara and I actually both um, had COVID. And uh, so it was just her and I at the house. Our kids um, were, were at their dad's house. Um, I'm very grateful to be in a, in a, uh, in a, functional triangle parenting where they, they have a, their dad's here local. He's a good dude. Um, but so it was just Dara and I here. I had these pressure sores. I jump in the shower 
And, uh, and I'm like, hey, babe, we check these out to make sure we don't have anything going on. And I laid on my face there and, and uh, she was betwixt my cheeks checking me out. And, um, <laughs> and I felt like this is love. And I realized that seems weird, but when you're a person in a wheelchair uh, or a disabled person um, and you still have like the, you're, uh, you're very cognitive in your, your ability to, to, to know what, what's going on. Like, at least me, there's been several times with, with other girlfriends or something where I felt like I was a burden where like, I'm like, Oh man, like the, the extra that comes along with dating a dude in a wheelchair is just an annoyance. Oh God. Um, and I've never once felt that with Dara. And, um, but I also, the whole time dating her, I've never felt like I deserved to be with her. Um, uh, and I, and I, I realized on my birthday, um, uh, two years ago that nobody does. Nobody deserves to be with Dara. So I might as well try. Um, and so as soon as she got done uh, um, checking out my pressure sores, I sat up and I proposed to her right there in the shower, butt naked with no ring or nothing. And uh, she leapt in and gave me a hug and, and everything. And uh, yeah, and then we got, um, we got married August 21st of 2022 of last year. September 21st, whoops, not August. Um, <laughs> um, and, uh, and then Dora and I have also uh, started a fundraising company um, called Fuller Freedom Fundraising uh, with the, the help of Warrior Rising. Um, and so uh, I, I bring all that up because I don't think any of that would have been uh, possible without Dara. Without Dara and her love and, and belief uh, to allow me to be authentic, um, I would have let my uh, my empire of dirt, if you will, bury me. I was completely okay with um, with dying a junkie because I didn't believe myself that I could be anything else. Wow, man, um, Tommy, I have I've met many guys that were tough and mean, and their life was spiraling downhill, and then through the hard, persistent love of a woman it radically changed their life. But you did something in this episode that I rarely get a chance to hear from guys. I've heard you be real. I've heard you take responsibility. I've heard you tell the whole story and not hold anything back. And man, I'm really, really proud of the way that you are vulnerable and authentic. And I wish I had a chance to tell Dara, I'm amazed at the change that's happened and a lot of that is because a woman started to show you the real value and your worth as a human being. So just um, as from one veteran to another, man, thank you for all that you've given up for our country. But now, thank you for being willing to just be this real with people about your past and those eight years of drugs and prison and, you know, uh, ruining a lot of people's lives. And then one one lady stays with you. Um, this episode has been an awesome way to kick off 2024, man. And I just want to say thanks. People that want to know more about you, how can they find out more about you or about For Freedom Fundraising? Um, so our website at forfreedomfundraising.com is uh, is up. It's still kind of being um, constructed, but there you can see some of the stuff that we've done. Um, we've raised over $2 million this year for, uh, for nonprofits, wow. um, and, and plan to raise more next year. 
Um, if you would like to follow what I'm doing personally, you can uh, at King Kong 0311 on Instagram. Um, and then yeah, I have we'll, Tommy Parker on Facebook. All right. So we're going to put links to that in the notes. If you're driving and listening to this episode, check out the notes and you'll find the website, his Instagram. And who knows, maybe you'll see Tommy at an ultra or I mean, at a marathon or a half marathon one day. I hope so. Hey, again, thanks, brother, for being on this show. And I hope you have a great 2024. Thanks for what you're doing with Four Freedom Fundraising. Thank you, Jeff. Man, I don't even recognize the artist, but that music lyrics that Tommy just quoted, it hit like a ton of bricks. I hope it hit you like it hit me. When he said that there's no painkiller that works if the pain that you're trying to kill is yourself. And maybe some bad stuff has happened to you in 2023. Maybe you've made some mistakes and you've hurt some people that you really love in 2023. Well, this year is an entirely blank slate with new opportunities. So if you've made some mistakes like Tommy has, if you've got some regrets for some people that you've hurt like Tommy, why don't you learn a lesson from this guy who chose to be real and be loved and become honest with himself. And in the process, life took a very different turn for him. Hey, I want to just say thank you. Thank you for staying connected with this podcast. We've been going strong for a couple of years now. And if you just bounced across this um, episode for the first time and it caught your attention, there are lots more amazing stories that we've already done. But if you want to just stay in touch with us, why don't you go ahead and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform or watch us on YouTube. Also, you can stay connected with us on social media. If you want to find our channels, just search for at Unbeatable Podcast. And you're going to find some good people there like Donald McKelvey, our fan of the week this week. There's some amazing fans that are connected with us all week long on social media. But the best way for you to stay connected with us is to join the Unbeatable Army. It's totally free. All you got to do is go over to unbeatablearmy.com. And when you sign up, we'll start sending you content about the episodes. We'll start sending you extra content throughout the week. So why don't you join up and become part of the Unbeatable Army right over at unbeatablearmy.com. I hope this episode has got you fired up for 2024. And I'll see you right back here next time. God bless. These stories of triumph over adversity will help you handle your toughest days in life and become unbeatable.